So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. May we see it in perhaps its broader context and the, the deep subject that, um, that, that it addresses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are few subjects that are more essential for us to understand as your missionaries of mercy than the relationship between mercy and judgment. May we try to understand what James and John were thinking of when they said this and how it relates and, and, and how Jesus responded and how that relates. Lord, I just pray that not only those of us who follow you and have been called according to your purpose and have been given a commission to be the, the messengers of your words, but those who've never heard it before, those who might be hovering in the balance and those who don't recognize that mercy does not mean no judgment. In fact, mercy depends on judgment. And may that become clear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shortly, well, immediately after the same day that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he revealed himself to his disciples. And he said something very important to them. He said, as the Father has sent me, even now I am sending you. Now, there's two things in that I want you to see, two things that are very important. First of all, Jesus says, the Father sent me. So Jesus was sent into this world for a purpose. Uh, He he had a mission. He, He was the apostle, the apostle, capital A. He was the messenger, the missionary that God sent into this world. Now, he then turns to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave and says, as the Father sent me, so now I'm sending you. Now, obviously, he's not talking there about his crucifixion and atonement. So in what way was Jesus saying to his disciples, I am now sending you out as I was sent here? Well, we know that in Matthew, they're commissioned to be the evangelists, the sharers of the gospel, the missionaries that God has sent. He says, go therefore into the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, kind of truncating that. But he sends them out now as the missionaries. But we may get that, but the question remains, what kind of missionaries are we? What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of message do we share? And what have we been called to do? And and, and in in a sense, what's the, 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 the relationship? What's the balance between what we know is the judgment of God and the mercy of God and the mission that Jesus was called for? 
Let me see if I can clarify where I'm headed with this with one of Jesus' uh, parables. And, and he addresses this directly. And you're all very familiar with this parable. It's the parable of a man who built a vineyard and he got it all ready, spent a lot of money on it, and then he hired some tenants to work it for him. And, and he went away. And then after a couple of years, when it was time to start reaping the fruit from this vineyard to reap the benefits, he sent his servants there to collect what was due him. Well, we know that the tenants were wicked and they treated them very poorly. They beat one, they killed another, they stoned another and, 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 and said, we're not about to pay you what your due is. Well, then the master sent another set of, of servants there and they treated them the same way. But now as the parable goes, the master said, surely if I send my son, if I send my son to them, they will respect him and live up to the standard or to the agreement that we have. And so he sent his son to the vineyard. Now let's stop because I have a question for you. Obviously, you know the corollary between the the life of Jesus and God's redemptive plan. We, We know that this is a living parable that actually occurred, but I want to ask you something. What kind of a mission was the son on in this parable? It was a mission of mercy. I mean, these guys over in the vineyard are not getting what they deserved. They deserved for the armies of that master to come immediately on the very first time that they killed one of his servants. They should have been annihilated. But when the master sent his son, he sends his son as a messenger of mercy with a message for those people. If you'll repent and, and if you'll, you'll live up to our standard that, or, or the agreement that we have, then I'll forget it all and, and we can continue to have relationship. But they didn't do it. They killed the son. And you know what the way that parable start, ends, don't you? By Jesus asking the question in, in, in one gospel and answering it another, what should happen to those people? Well, it's very clear. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. In other words, judgment because of the rejection of the mercy. So then Jesus steps back and he says, in, in essence, I, I am that missionary. I am that son, and and this is my message. I am coming to you, and I am sharing with you a message of mercy. God wants to have mercy upon you, and here is the way that we achieve that. But if you reject it, if you reject the Son of Man, well, he goes on to say that there would be severe judgment. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So here's my point. There's a relationship between mercy and judgment. And when we ask ourselves the question, what kind of a ministry are we? What kind of mission does the church have? What kind of missionaries what should we be? And what is our message? We live in the age of mercy. Let me explain something. Unfortunately, what has happened in evangelical America is that mercy means to destroy judgment, to act like it's not there, to water it down, to, to, to um, uh, make, make our sins seem less than they are. But no, if you destroy judgment, you destroy mercy. You understand that, don't you? 
That mercy is to, is to not get what you deserve. And judgment is what you deserve. So mercy is the, is the escape from judgment. If you destroy judgment, you destroy mercy. If you destroy mercy, there's nothing left but judgment. And, and, and that's the comparison that we have in our text this morning, whether you can see it right off the bat or not. So let me see if I can bring that alive for you. Now, I've told you many times over the last weeks and months that we are reaching a a threshold, a turning point in Luke's gospel. Well, this verse 51 is that turning point, and we're going to look at it later. It's the beginning of a new segment of Luke's gospel. But that doesn't mean that the themes or the flow of what Luke has been bringing out in this ninth chapter is disrupted. In, In fact, they continue just to flow into each other. So let me, let me sort of back up a little bit. You know, we've had the Easter break, so let me just remind you of at least the flow in this particular chapter. It starts out talking about the outreach of the church. Jesus sends the 12 out two by two as missionaries, as messengers into the villages and towns of Galilee. And, and, and then later, we, we, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Now, one of Luke's major uh, focus or foci, uh, major focus in this part of the gospel has been the divinity of Christ, that Jesus as the divine, miracle-working, supernatural Son of God. Well, we see that in that, that feeding of the 5,000, but then also we saw that the disciples are going to have a part in that. They're the distributors of the bread of life. So once again, we see a focus on the missionary activity of the church to follow. Well, then, of course, we know we saw that beautiful, magnificent revelation of the glory and the divinity of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then when they descended and they found that the nine disciples below were were unable to cast out a demon, that, along with Peter's blunder at the top of the mountain, reveals to us. It reveals a real serious problem that's going to come to its head here this morning. And that is that the disciples are still have their heads in the world. They're still expecting a different kind of kingdom than the one that has come. And there's a very short amount of time, just a matter of months, before Jesus leaves this world. And so these guys need to get an understanding of what the message is of the kingdom, what the kind of kingdom it is, and what their part in it is. And towards that end, Jesus has been teaching them some lessons. And I'm going to go deeper into the lessons as we go into this. So I won't go into them now, but just to remind you, first of all, you know, they have that argument coming back from the Mount of Transfiguration about who's the greatest boy. That really shows they don't understand the kingdom at all. And Jesus teaches them a lesson in humility by bringing a child in and saying, this is greatness. And we talked about how necessary a humble heart was. Well, that kind of spilled into the the, the next lesson, which was that the kingdom, although it is exclusive in the sense that God is the one who calls people to himself out of darkness, it is inclusive in the sense that people from every walk of life, from every corner of the world, from all ethnicities, cultures, and races are going to be brought into the kingdom. So it is an inclusive It is a kingdom of inclusive exclusivity, and we talked about that. Well, that's going to come up again 
this morning. But if you take those two lessons, the lesson of humility and then the lesson of inclusiveness, it's going to spill into this lesson, which is a lesson of mercy. We are in the age of mercy, not the age of judgment. And that's where the, 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 the problem is going to exist. Well, with that said, let's jump into this text. We actually have quite a bit of it. So let's, uh, let's look at verse 51. As I said, this is a hugely important verse because it's the transition from one segment to the next. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, depending on how you look at it, I, I, I see this as the third major division in Luke's gospel. A lot of scholars say it's just the first, that there's two divisions that we have seen so far. I take the first two chapters of Luke and I divide that out. That's the nativity narrative, and that is where we learn of the divine origins of Christ, his place in redemptive history. But then starting in the third chapter, all the way through the 50th verse of this ninth chapter... It's what we call the Galilean ministry. And in that Galilean ministry, Luke's primary focus has been to introduce Jesus as the supernatural, miracle-working, divine Son of God. And so he has done that, culminating on that transfiguration on top of the mountain. Well, starting here in verse 51 and going all the way to the 19th chapter, the 27th verse... Remember, all of the chapter designations were added later, so they don't necessarily line up with the division, the, the logical division. But there is where we begin to see the, tri the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we get into the Passion. So this is called the Perean ministry of Jesus. And the focus of this ministry is going to be the education of the disciples, getting these men ready to understand understand their calling, understand the kingdom, understand Christ, and be ready for Pentecost when they become the foundations of the church. So that, that's really the focus of this particular ministry. Now, with that said, and knowing that this is an important verse, let's just spend a few minutes to kind of look at the words that are, are here so that we, that we grab the gist of it. It starts out with the, the phrase, when the days drew near. That's a classic Luke arbitrary designation of time. We don't know how long that time is or how short it is. We imagine it's only a couple of days or weeks from the time of the lessons at the base of the Mount of, of Transfiguration. But nonetheless, it's not so much a designation of time as it is a designation of, of providence, in other words, the way that is phrased is to tell us without question that this is not something that just happens willy-nilly. God has a plan. It is laid out. This is his eternal decree. And we're going to see a great determination in Jesus in just a moment. So all of this has been preordained by the Father. And the days are numbered. There, he knows when the triumphal entry is going to happen, in other words. Well, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Now, a lot of people think that that is actually referring to the crucifixion. And I'm not going to tell you that it's not. But it doesn't stop there. Because it, it, even though that sounds like a verb in the ESV version, it's actually a noun. It, it's the days of his 
ascension that are being talking about, taken up into heaven. And so what Luke is doing is moving us beyond just the crucifixion and resurrection. He is moving us beyond to say that this is all kind of flowing into each other. The crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and coronation of Jesus. Because what that does to us is it gives us sort of an eschatological scope to this. Because when we think about the ascension, we're going to see Jesus coronated king of kings and given the dominion of all the cosmos that he is, has power and authority over. When we talk about that dominion, we also think about him returning in power and glory. And when he returns in power and glory, he comes back as a judge. And so wrapped up into this is the beginning of an age that will end in judgment. While we're in the age, brothers and sisters, we're in the age of mercy. And that's what we're going to go with the understanding. Well, finally, he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase I mean, we can see it. Uh, Isaiah uses almost exactly the same phrase in one of his servant songs talking about Jesus. He says, I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In, in, in other words, it, it is a statement of determination. It is a statement of resolution. He is resolved resolutely now. He turns his face towards Jerusalem. And since he's not going to head there like in a beeline, he's not going to go straight there. It's not as much a statement of destination as it is a statement of purpose. He turns his face. He sets his face in flint. It's almost a compulsion, knowing that this is the eternal decree of God. Knowing why he is there and knowing what his ministry is, he resolutely turns his face to focus on his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, coronation, and the, and the end of this time of his incarnation. And here's what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, and, and I'm just going to keep drilling this in all morning. This is a resolute mission of mercy. He is here for mercy's sake, uh, the mercy that the Father is extending. Well, anyway, with that opening, let's turn to the action now because we see the, the trek towards Jerusalem begin, it begins through Samaria. So let's take a look at that in the 52nd verse. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now we'll get to the problem of the Samaritans in a moment. Let, let, let's concentrate first on this idea of the messengers, of, of sending messengers to make preparations for him. Now, in the short run, I mean, in a literal sense, obviously what Jesus is doing, he's got an entourage traveling with him. He sends some of his disciples to this Samaritan village to prepare. Now, what the preparations are, we don't know. It, it could be that he plans to stay there. And, and if that were the case, then a village like that's not going to have a hotel or restaurants. 
they would stay in people's homes. And so that would be a, a burden on that little village. So he was preparing them for that. Um, it might just be that he was going to have a town meeting where he healed people and proclaimed the gospel. We don't know because he's not given the chance actually to be in that, in, in that village because they're, they're going to reject him. But I, I think more important than the literal um, um, meaning here is the, is the figurative what, what, what it means to have a messenger that is sent ahead. And the giveaway here is that word prepare. They, they went to make preparations for him. That's exactly the same word that is used of John the Baptist earlier in Luke when Luke um, quotes Isaiah and, 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 and says that, um, that prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, that's exactly what is happening here. So the idea of sending a messenger ahead of the proclamation is something that God has been doing for years. All through the Old Testament, God would send messengers. We know that starting in Moses, actually, and going all of, you know through all of the great prophets of old, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, um, Zechariah, Malachi, I mean, just name them out. All of these were messengers that God sent to herald the coming of his son, to, to tell of what his word was, to reveal him, and to, 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 to be the forerunners of the message that he was sending. And, of course, the greatest of those we know was John the Baptist. And that was actually what, and the reason he was great, it was his proximity to Jesus. He was the closest to Jesus in that what made him so great. But he, he was the one to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight his path, the voice crying in the wilderness. And so therefore we recognize that these messengers all came to prepare us for the coming of Christ. But one thing I think we forget is that Jesus also is that messenger. He's the messenger, capital M. And going back to that parable that I told you in the beginning, he's the son that is coming with the, from the father with a message of mercy. Not a message of judgment, but a message of mercy. My father is willing to forgive you if you'll just put your faith and trust in me. And then Jesus is going to turn around and send out others as messengers. Verse the 12, he sends them out two by two into the surrounding areas. And pretty soon in chapter 10, we're going to see him send out 72 disciples in the same context to go out and be the messengers of the message of peace, the missionaries of peace, if you will. And so therefore, the idea of these messengers going out is um, a, a very important one. Now, let's go back and pick up the problem with him going through Samaria. Because, as most of you know, there's a lot of bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Both of them had committed atrocities against the other. Neither one of them were willing to forgive and forget those atrocities. So basically, they hated each other. This, you know, the Jews couldn't stand the, the Samaritans because they were half-bloods. But I think more than just being a half-blood was the fact that they had taken the, 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 the worship of Yahweh and they had twisted it. They, they had mixed it with paganism and, and made it a different kind of, of religion. So there, there was bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. I'll 
go a little bit more into that in the after church if you're interested in a little bit of that history. It's actually quite extraordinary. But for that reason, most Jews would not, if they're going to travel to Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is headed, most Jews would not go through Samaria because, one, it was dangerous. I mean, they used to harass and sometimes even kill pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And secondly, they felt like it was defiled. They didn't even want to walk on the dust that, that was Samaritan dust. So most Jews would, just north of the Sea of Galilee, they would cross over the Jordan River. They would go down the eastern side of the Jordan into Perea and that part, down as far as Jericho, and somewhere around there, they would cross back over the Jordan and make their way into Jerusalem from the east. But it was much, much quicker to go straight through. So Jesus is going to go straight through. He's not going to take that, that meandering uh, uh, away around that. Now, the, the, the reason for this, I believe, is to teach his disciples another lesson in inclusive exclusivity. In other words, he's on a mission of mercy. And his mission of mercy is to expand the concept. You know, we know Jesus came just for the lost sheep of Israel. But he sure spent a lot of time amongst those who were not the lost sheep of Israel, like the the Gesserines, uh, uh, the Gerasenes, I'm sorry, on the other side of the lake, and the Syrophoenician woman up in the Decapolis, and now with the Samaritans, showing that this inclusive kingdom is going to include even the hated Samaritans. And that's one of the lessons that, that, that these disciples are going to have to learn. And so therefore, I, I, I see this as sort of a, a, a lesson. Let, let's go through Samaria and I have something that I want to teach you, which it doesn't take long for that to come about. Look in the 53rd uh, verse. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, I know that that doesn't mean a lot to us because we're not wrapped up in ancient Middle Eastern hospitality. But pretty much this was unheard of. This was a real slap in the face. You know, we talk a lot about Jewish hospitality, that anybody comes knocking at your door in those days, you're obligated to open your door, bring them in, wash their feet, feed them, give them a place to stay because there weren't any hotels in the area. Well, it wasn't just the Jews. It was all of Palestine. So the Samaritans had the same sort of rules that they would follow. But here, Jesus and his entourage come to this town, and they ask for preparations, and the town rejects them. They didn't receive them. We don't want anything to do with you. Just keep on going. Now, that was a, that was a, 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 a major slap. Uh, and we don't know how this looked. We imagine that it was uh, kind of ugly. You know, there was a confrontation that was involved with this. But there's, there, there's, there, there's a reason that is given for this. And we, we want to make sure it's not just racial. And it's not just the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Look in the second part of that verse. The, the people didn't receive him because... He had set his face towards Jerusalem, specifically because he was on his way to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, what had happened about 150 years prior to this, about 110 B.C., 
a group of Maccabean um, Jews left Jerusalem, marched on Mount Gerizim. You, you realize that, that, that one of the problems between the Samaritans and the Jews was that the Jews say the temple of God on Mount Zion, that's it. That's the place where God comes. Well, the Samaritan says, not so. We're going to build a temple up here on Mount Gerizim. You remember the woman at the well telling Jesus that our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Your fathers worship in Jerusalem and say it's the only place to worship. And Jesus says the time is coming where neither place is going to be required because you will worship God in spirit and truth. But that brought out the fact that there was the ruins of a temple on top of Mount Gerizim. Now, the Samaritans didn't take that kindly and they never forgot it. So therefore, they would harass and even sometimes kill pilgrims coming through their area headed for Jerusalem. Because it's like, okay, you kill our, you destroy our temple and you expect us to give you safe passage to go worship at yours. I don't think so. And so therefore, it was the fact that Jesus had his face towards Jerusalem that caused them to reject him and not receive him. You may remember again from John 4, that, that woman at the well, that's right at the base of Mount Gerizim, and they treated him quite well. Why? Because he was headed to Galilee rather than headed to Jerusalem. So there's a reason that the, that the Jews are, um, are rejecting him here. The, um, there, there's an, an expressed reason for that. But brothers and sisters, once again, it's not just, and, and, and I should go ahead and tell you this. I meant to tell you at the beginning. I, I am going to step back from this, and, and we are going to look at it as a living parable uh, to, to where we, we, I, just, I just see a, a, a massive, beautiful image of the gospel and God's redemptive plan in this story. So the figurative reason here, I think, is more significant than just the fact that these people rejected him. And that is that Jesus, although he has come on a mission of mercy, is constantly rejected. I mean, if there is one thing that typifies the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming down to this earth, it is rejection by the most of the people on this planet. He was rejected by his own people, his own hometown at Nazareth. They tried to throw him off a cliff. And Jesus says a prophet is not, uh, I, I don't know why I'm laughing at that. That's not funny at all. Uh, but nonetheless, they were rejecting him when he went to Gerasene and he cast out the demon from that man. Because of the pig incident, the people from the town came out and said, we don't want you here. We want you to leave. Well, even though the people of Galilee thought he was wonderful because he'd worked all those great miracles, when it came right down to it and the question is asked, who do people say that I am? Well, they said he's everything but the Messiah. So in the very sense that he came, they rejected him. Now he's being rejected by the Samaritans. When he gets to um, Jerusalem, the very same people who cry out Hosanna are the ones who are going to cry out crucify him. The greatest rejection is going to be Jesus Christ on the cross. And to this very day, most people reject the one who has come to offer God's mercy to them. Boggles the imagination. We realize that, of course, the heart has to be changed to be able to see that. 
But that is the, the override, one of the overriding characteristics of Christ's ministry is the continued rejection. Well, apparently, some of his disciples did not take this too friendly. Look in the 54th verse. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Um, I think these two brothers, James and John, by the way, don't miss the fact that this is the second thing that John's been involved with. Okay, this is the disciple of love, remember, when you see this. But Jesus called these two brothers the Boanerges or the Boanerges. And and that's a, a, a Greek word that means sons of thunder. Now, probably the reason he called them sons of thunder is because they had such a fiery disposition. And we see it here. It doesn't say that the rest of the disciples didn't get upset. But these two are the hotheads. (laughs) They're the fiery ones. And they want to bring judgment down upon these people. They want retribution to the people of this town in the form of fire from heaven. Doesn't that seem a little excessive to you? I mean, just a wee bit. I mean, they, they want to bring fire from heaven down and kill every man, woman, child, and living beast in a town because they refused them bed and breakfast? Have, have they not heard that, that the punishment needs to match the crime? And, and that's just a little overboard. Well, I'm not so sure it is. And, and, and I want to make a case that, the, that John and James and probably the rest of the disciples have their heads firmly in the Old Testament idea of the Messiah and the kingdom of Israel, the very same one that they're going to ask Jesus about literally when he ascends to heaven, that they're not going to understand fully until Pentecost that they are trapped in an Old Testament context and they honestly believe That they are the missionaries of judgment, not the missionaries of mercy. There's an Old Testament precedent to what they say when they say, let's call down um, fire from heaven. And and that comes out of uh, of Kings, um, 2 Kings, in in the story of Elijah. You remember the story where, uh, I think it was Ahaziah, the, the king of, of the northern kingdom, uh, heard that, that uh, Elijah was preaching against him and that he was going to die. And so he sent 50 soldiers to, to go and bring Elijah in front of him, I guess, for punishment. And the soldiers came up to him and he says, Oh, man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. <laughs> As Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And I think that's what's in the back of James and John's mind when they say this. Do you want us to bring fire from heaven? Now, I think there's something quite disturbing here, and, and I want to delve into it. I, I think there's something disturbing about the way that James and John, and probably the rest of the disciples, are seeing the ministry of Jesus. And and, and as as I said before, I think they're stuck in the Old Testament. And I believe that what they believe is that their purpose at this time is is to bring judgment on all the enemies of God. 
Now, we know that the, the, all the Jewish world at that time expected Jesus, the Messiah, to be the one who is going to come and overthrow or throw off the oppression of the Romans. But we say that all the time. You do realize how they intended to do that, don't you? Through armed conflict, a battle, by killing them by wiping them out, by running them through with the sword. That is the way that they thought this was going to go. And, and, and apparently it's not just the Romans that they thought the Messiah was going to lead them against, but every one of the enemies of God, whoever is opposed to God, whoever is not worshiping Yahweh in the way that they worship Yahweh needs to be eradicated and annihilated and done away with. This is the judgment of God coming down upon all those sinners that surround them. And in that sense, what they're seeing is the kingdom of David. Because that's the way the kingdom of David was won. You you have to realize this. That when they expected the kingdom of David to be restored, it was a kingdom. Remember, David couldn't build the temple because he's a man of blood. David killed. (laughs) I got to read you something. All right. Kay and I, in our uh, devotions the other morning, were reading um, Psalm 18. And, and when we got through with Psalm 18, we looked at each other and said, did we just read that? Uh, um, uh, or, or are you paying attention to what it says? David is giving God thanks for, for, for protecting him from his enemies. Let me just read to you the way he puts this. He said, I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was no no one to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire in the streets." That's the kind of kingdom that James and John think that they're on. Is that kind of kingdom that is going to bring judgment upon everybody. So of course they say, hey, do you want us to bring fire from heaven? But you know what's so disturbing about that? Is that I believe James and John know at this point that they can't do anything without the Lord. I think they recognize that, you know, if Jesus is on the boat, it's not going to sink. If he's not on the boat, it's going to sink, like when they crossed over the Sea of Galilee that time. And so, therefore, if they're calling fire down from heaven, they are under the impression that Jesus is complicit in that judgment. And if Jesus is complicit, God is complicit. In other words, they honestly believe that that is the ministry that God is about to bring about. Because otherwise they wouldn't have said, we'll bring fire down from heaven. They know that's not going to happen themselves, but they're men of God. And so they are expecting that to occur. That's disturbing. Because they are so far off in the understanding of what Jesus has come to do. But... Not completely off. Let me confuse you now. Because they're not completely off. You see, where they're wrong is with the timing. They understand that the wages of sin is death. They understand that there is judgment for transgressions against the holy God. 
They understand that in some time, God will destroy his enemies. It's just not now. You see, there's a time for judgment, and there's a time for mercy. And now's the time for mercy when the master sends his son. It is on a trip of mercy. When they kill his son, then comes the judgment. So folks, realize something, that if we're going to be missionaries of the kingdom, if we're going to be ministers and messengers of the true word that is being expressed here, it is a word of mercy. But you cannot separate mercy from judgment. It, the truth of the reality of things is that judgment is coming. And if you try to destroy judgment, if you try to make God kinder and nicer because you think that his judgment is, 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 is angry or hateful or, or evil... You, you misunderstand God's holiness entirely. Judgment is necessary. If there is no judgment, there is no mercy. Because mercy is to be released or saved from or to not have to face the wrath of God. So therefore, let me define mercy for you. Mercy is the humble. It is the humble offering of loving kindness and redemption to a group of people who do not deserve it. You see, that's the whole concept. We're in the age of mercy right now because the age of mercy is God sending his son and his son sending other messengers into the world to say that God is a merciful and a loving and a compassionate God. And he offers you a way to escape his his, his judgment at the end of time. And it's there for you. And it's pro provided and it's put in front of you. Don't reject it. Because it is the mercy of God. Well, nonetheless, we see that that is the idea that is behind this. They misunderstand the times. But look what happens in verse 55. But he, meaning Jesus, turned and rebuked them. Notice who he rebukes. One would think he would be rebuking the Samaritans who had just refused him. Who had just said, we don't want anything to do with you. Move on. I don't want you in this town. Total rejection. One would think that it would be them who would get the rebuke. But it's not. It's his disciples. Because they misunderstood the nature of their calling. They misunderstood the spirit in which they have been called and what the ministry of the kingdom is. In other words, they were engaged with arrogant exclusivity. Not inclusive, but literally exclusive exclusivity. Everyone who is not a Jew, everyone who is not part of the covenant is going to be destroyed or subjugated militarily and politically under this new kingdom. And we, of course, are going to be the head guys in that. That's not at all what this is about. And that's why Jesus rebukes them. He is in full um, teaching mode. Because he needs his disciples not just to behave, not just to learn to turn the other cheek, but to recognize that the ministry, the mission, the message of the kingdom of God is a message of mercy. God has extended you mercy. But mercy won't last forever because there's judgment at the end. But as long as there's breath in your body, there's hope. Because mercy doesn't 
disappear when the first of these lessons or the first of these rejections occur. Praise God, because if it were true, I would not be here. But anyway, look at verse 56. And they went on to another village. Wait a minute. That's odd, isn't it? Jesus just leaves. No fire from heaven. No shaking the dust off his feet. No curses. No warnings. No nothing. He just leaves. Now, he's already done this once. And I I, I want you to see the trend. Remember when he was over in Gerasim? And after he healed the demoniac and cast out the many demons and they all went to the pigs and all the pigs died and the people came out and said, Jesus, leave. He didn't call fire down in heaven from, uh, from heaven on them. He didn't shake the dust off his feet. He didn't tell them that there was going to be hell to pay for that. He just simply got in the boat and left. Now, interesting. Just in a few verses in Luke 10... He seems to say the opposite. He's sending out the 72 and he says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Eschatological judgment. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, shake the dust off of your feet. But it's not the end. You see, remember what he did when he left Gerasene. He left a missionary. He left the demoniac. And he said, no, you can't come with us. Go around and tell people what God has done for you. Because they deserve, or they don't deserve, excuse me, please take that back. They, they, they get an extra chance because this is the dam of mercy. Same thing with these Samaritans. It's not the end. They get a second chance. Because later on in the book of Acts, we'll read that Philip had an amazing ministry among the Samaritans. That men and women were coming by the droves and listening to the gospel and being saved and being baptized. Of course, we know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. But he had this, this great ministry in Samaria in the same place because... God is not finished with mercy. And brothers and sisters, if we only had one chance, and once we rejected the gospel, it was all over, I wouldn't be here. And a lot of you wouldn't be here either. Because I can't tell you how many times I rejected the gospel before finally God, God beat it into my stupid head. That he's a God of mercy and compassion, and this is the age of mercy. Now, I should say one thing. Um, uh, for those of you who are reading along in the New King, I mean, or the King James or the New American Standard, you'll notice that the way I gave those last two verses is substantially different from what reads in your Bible. Let me read the same two verses from the New American Standard Version. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, in the New American Standard, those additions are in square brackets, which means that the better manuscripts don't carry that. It is not so in the, in the King James Version. It just gives you to that. 
Now, more than likely, that is an addition of a copyist and wasn't in the original. Most of the better manuscripts, the earlier manuscripts, do not include that. And so a copyist reading that and seeing that it's somewhat abrupt, that it leaves a lot to a question, he added from other places in scriptures, primarily John 3. That this is the age of mercy and you don't understand the spirit that you've been called for. But as John MacArthur points out, it's, it's a, a worthy commentary. I mean, he gets it right. He, he, it's an editorial. It's, it's not part of the original text probably, but it's a good commentary because that's exactly what I just said. That this is the age of mercy. It's not the age of judgment. And you did not come to bring judgment. You came to bring mercy. But mercy, dear brothers and sisters, includes the inevitability of judgment unless something happens to atone for the sins against a holy God. And that, of course, is why Jesus came. So let me step back real quickly. I'll make this short. I said earlier that I see this as a living parable. A living parable is in no way questions the historicity, but it does give a wonderful illustration, and I see in this story a comprehensive illustration of God's redemptive plan culminating in the coming of Jesus and the gospel. So let me just give it to you very quickly. From all eternity past, it was God's intent to bring into relationship with him those who would fall out of relationship with him in the fall, It's exclusive, it's selective, it's not everybody. God in his sovereignty calls those that he will call out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus says, no one can come to to me unless the Father who sent me calls him or brings him out of that darkness. So there's an exclusive group, but it is a group that have been prepared before the foundations of the world for what God has in plan for them. As Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So God has a determination. He has resolutely throughout all of Uh, of redemptive history been leading to the point that his son would come on a mission of of mercy to explain God's merciful plan to forgive their sins, to atone for them, and to bring them back into relationship with himself. Peter tells us it was always the second member of the Godhead who was planned to do this from all eternity past. Paul tells us that it was the most extraordinary example of humility when God took on the attributes of a human and walked in our midst. But we need to recognize that when Jesus humbled himself, when he took on those attributes, when he is born into the place that we live in, this sewer of a world represented by Samaria in this story, he came on a mission of mercy. He came to tell us that my father is willing to forgive you and he has sent me as the missionary of mercy. This is the age of mercy and everyone who will put their trust in me will live even though they die. For the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might 
be saved. This is the reason that Jesus came. And for all of the Old Testament period, just as we have talked about, he sent messengers out into the world to tell us of this coming, of the time that God would bring mercy. There would be no judgment for those who put their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the prophets of old, the angels who came at the nativity story and announced the coming of Jesus and how wonderful that was. It is that mercy is entering this world because the missionary of mercy is coming to you. And of course, Jesus sets the same standard. He sends his missionaries out. And throughout the history of the church, that has continued on today. And I stand before you this morning as a missionary of mercy to tell you about the mercy of God. That's why I keep going over it and over it, is that God in his mercy has given you a way to avoid his horrible wrath. But throughout the history of humanity, the overriding response to that has been rejection. That's why we see these Samaritans reject Jesus. They they just tell him to go on. We don't want your mercy. We'll do it on our own, or, or else my sin's not that bad, or I've, I've wished God away, or, or, or I've, I've watered him down into somebody who winks at my sin. I, I, I don't need your mercy. And, and so what we have is the evangelical church actually teaching people that there is no judgment. There's just annihilation. You just simply die and, and push up daisies, and that's the end of it. There's no punishment. There's no hell. There's none of that. Well, if there's no hell and there's no punishment, there's no mercy. You don't need mercy if there's no sin. You don't need grace. You don't need any of this. Jesus didn't need to come. There's no reason for him to have died on the cross if there's no no judgment. It's to save you from the wrath of God that he died. It is the merciful offering of a holy God to say that you cannot possibly stand in my presence unless you accept the mercy that I give you. Reject it and you face the wrath of God on your own. That's the age that we live in, folks. We're in the age of mercy. Now, uh, some of us need to, to learn that. We need to recognize we're not James and John, folks. It's not judgment now. We don't want the fire of God to come down on the wicked culture that's around us. We want to get the message of mercy out to them. That God has come to them in mercy and love and compassion and is the time of grace. Instead of being so, so, so self-righteous and looking down our nose, people saying, God's going to punish you. That's James and John. That's not us. That is not the spirit to which we have been called. We have been called to be missionaries of mercy. So let me end this in this way. It is precisely, precisely at the rejection of Jesus where mercy finds its greatest expression. It, it, it is when in your arrogance, and, and, and I'm looking in the mirror here, and I'm talking to myself, it is in your absolute arrogance that you say, I don't need God. I, I, I don't need Jesus. 
I mean, I've got it. I've got this. I've got my life. And so therefore, yeah, I, I, I reject the gospel and I reject the New Testament. I reject God and I'll face it on my own. My dear brothers and sisters, it is in that rejection that we see the greatest example of his mercy. Because I did that. I did it over and over again. And here I stand. Not because I ever came to the realization that this was the age of mercy. It's because in his mercy, he would not let me to continue to reject him. He brought me into repentance instead. And he saved me through his own grace to his own glory and not to mine. And I know there's so many of you here that have the same testimony. If it, if it was over, like James and John wanted it to be, one rejection and fire and brimstone from heaven and your toast, then we're not here. Nor is Peter. Nor is Paul. Nor any of the great saints of the world. So the part of the grace that we experience is the fact that this continues and transcends even our rejection. So please, as I bring this to a close, recognize this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and he has changed your heart, then you are a missionary of mercy. You've been called to that. You have been called to tell the world that God has extended mercy to them and that judgment awaits. But he has given them a way to avoid that judgment. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I beg of you, don't say I'll wait and find out if this guy's right or wrong. Because these aren't my words. I'm not speaking on my own authority. This is not my opinion. This is right out of the Word of God. And it is right out of what God has said. I sent my son so that you might be saved. So my dear friends, today, now, is the day of mercy. As long as you have breath in your body, there's mercy. When that breath leaves, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's only judgment. Make sure that he's on your side and he steps forward and says, he or she is one of mine. Turn to Jesus because he is the missionary of mercy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for not only coming to this world, not only having this magnificent plan of mercy, but also accepting the rejection of us. I just can't fathom that when so many people in this world... the the, the, the major number rejects you that you haven't done what John and James wanted to do, to bring judgment down upon us, to fry this whole world and get rid of it and start all over again. It's just a, a, the amazing mercy that you have shown us. But dear Lord, let us not as a church in our understanding and when we go out as the missionaries of mercy, don't let us forget that mercy and judgment are both truths. And, and, and there's different times. There's a time for mercy and a time for judgment. But they're both truths. 
And, and, and if we focus on just one or the other, we're missing the fullness of your gospel that mercy allows us to avoid judgment. I pray that message is the message that the church will, 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 will resound until you return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.